Well, good morning. And we welcome you to our adult Sunday school. Now, you'll notice this morning we don't have any students with us. Uh, Today is actually their first uh, Sunday that they're back in full, but for one time this uh, morning, Jason's going to meet with them separately to orient the new students and then go over some things with them. So, Lord willing, beginning next week, we'll be all together again and be a great day. We'll start a new study in Galatians beginning next week, which will occupy the rest of our Sunday school year, hopefully. And so, for this morning, we're just going to finish up on the section we we worked on last week in Colossians chapter 3, and really the first 17 verses. Last week, we went through the first part of verse 9, and we'll pick up there this morning, and Lord willing, finish up that section of Colossians chapter 3. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer before we start. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can come together this morning and to study your word. We pray, Lord, that you will help each one of us to be immersed and uh, transformed by your word daily. Help us, Lord, as we walk, to walk worthy according to the knowledge of your word. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the grace and the mercy that you've so abundantly displayed in each of our lives. And we commend ourselves to you together, Lord, as your body here this day, and we commend everything that is done here today to be glorifying to you and edifying to each other. So we pray and we thank you for this in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so the passage we're going to be covered this morning would be Colossians chapter 3 and beginning in the second part of verse 9 and going through the end uh, to verse 17. So let me, let's go ahead and read that and then we'll get started. Colossians chapter 3 verse 9 beginning in the second part where it says, Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and that expression could also, in some translations, it's since you have put off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ in all and in all. So though, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now in this, the whole passage, what we worked on last week and then the one we're covering this week, this passage really deals with the believer's new life in Christ. And of course, Paul uses here a metaphor that is of a putting off and putting on, which is a metaphor as really relating as though someone is putting off or taking off old clothes and then putting on new clothes. Of course, it's just that a figure of speech, it's a metaphor that's used. But in this session, Paul describes the transformed Christian life. And that's what we are dealing with. And we are commanded to put off some things which we looked at last week and then to put on some things which we'll look at this week. And this transformed life of the believer, of the Christian, is possible only because the true believer is in Christ. And we pointed out last week how, in the passage we saw last week, he uses the expressions in Christ or with Christ and uh, in, in the preeminence of Christ is uh, front and center throughout the passage. So Paul begins in the first four verses of this chapter uh, stating that since the believer has indeed died with Christ and has been raised up with him, then our focus should not be on earthly things, but our focus should be in Christ. Rather, our focus should be on things above, he states, on Christ who is exalted at God's right hand. He's exalted above all others. There's a wonderful passage in the second chapter of Philippians where Christ's humility is presented as an illustration. And then, of course, that he is exalted above every name. Our life is not drawn from, nor is it controlled by things in this world, but our life is hidden and secure with Christ in God. And that's why then the admonition to think of things above and not things below, because that is where our life is drawn from. That's what controls our life. And because as believers we're so intimately joined with Christ, his future glory means our glory also. And that's a wonderful, precious promise that we have. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, states the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So that wonderful promise of our glorification with Christ, because we are in him. And then chapter 8 and verse 30 states, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So in both of these passages, it's clearly stated and clearly given the promise of the believer's glorification in Christ. And then we saw last week that the Christian life is characterized by repentance from sins in which we once walked, Shameful things are to be put away. As we stated last week, the battle against sin starts in the mind. 
And that is an emphasis that we find in this passage. As believers, we must consider ourselves dead to the list of, remember we said representative things, sins that Paul lists in that passage we saw last week. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's representative. And putting them all aside, we must. That is, we must put them off. We are commanded to do so. But we're not just to avoid sin. We must also put on Christ. The virtues that are listed in the passage we're looking at this morning are virtues that are characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our example. He is the one that chose these virtues perfectly. And then we are called to follow him, to imitate him, put on those virtues. And this is the section that we look at this morning where Paul uses this metaphor comparing our salvation experience with putting on clothes. On the human side, the Colossians have gone from trusting themselves to trusting the gospel. That is, they've laid aside the old self and put on the new self, as we see in verses 9 and 10. But because, because God sovereignly is at work in salvation. This same faith can be described from the divine side, stressing the supernatural and transforming results of salvation that is being renewed. The old self is the old person. The whole person is ruled by sin. And the new self, described in this passage, is the whole person reborn in Christ. And that's the contrast that we find in this passage this morning. So let's begin looking at verse 9, the second part. The passage here in in verses 9, second part through 17, uh, stresses that the Christians must put on clothes. It says, being dressed spiritually in accordance with our new identity. Because as the new self, we have a new identity in Christ. The old identity has passed away. We have died with Christ and have risen to new life. Salvation thus produces a two-sided obligation for believers. First, we must throw off the garment of the old sinful lifestyle, as Paul pointed out in verses 5 through 9, the first part. And then we must put on the garments of the lifestyle of the new man, reflecting the virtues of Christ. Verse 9, the second part, says, Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. Now, this section is sort of a a link between what to put off, as we saw in verses 5 through the first part of verse 9, and then what will be put on in verses 12 through 17. The old self with its evil practices has already been laid aside, has been put off, At salvation, the old self was done away with. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 states, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul states, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So the old self has been done away with. 
Now, this is our position in Christ. This is where, where every true believer finds himself or herself in Christ. Because salvation is transformation. The old self is gone, replaced by the new self. So the question is, what is the old self? It's the unregenerate self, the former matter of existence in Adam. It is what, with that which was replaced by the regenerate self, the new creation at salvation. The new self, in contrast, is the regenerate self. It is what believers are now in Christ. The new self is the new creature that Paul referred to in the verse which is quoted in 2 Corinthians verse 5 and verse 17. The new self's pattern of daily conduct, and this is what this whole passage we're looking at is really pointing to, the new self's pattern of daily conduct is the day-by-day living is different from the world. It must be different from the world. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, of course the expression to walk is the daily conduct of the unbeliever, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now the word Gentiles here represents all ungodly, unregenerate, and pagan persons. On the basis of who we are in Christ and of all that God purposes for us, for each one of us, as his redeemed and beloved children, we are to be absolutely distinct from the rest of the world which does not know him or does not follow him. The Bible views all men as either in Christ or in Adam. All those who are true, regenerate believers are in Christ, and those who are not are in Adam. And Paul gives the contrast between Adam and Christ in Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 21. We're not going to read all the verses because of time, but in that passage states that through Adam, sin came and death came. Through Christ comes grace and righteousness. Through Adam's disobedience, and all people were made sinners. Through Christ's obedience, people are made righteous. The question then arises as to why believers sin if the old self is gone. They do so because the new self lives in the old body and must, be, must contend with the flesh. Paul shows this in the, in the conflict described in Romans chapter 7 and verses 14 through 25. Again, you can look at those passages later. We're not going to read them all because of time. But in that passage, sin is not in the inner man. Remember, it is, sin is the I, the inner man that Paul refers to when he refers to the I who is... The eye loves what is holy, but it is in the, still in um, unredeemed humanness in the flesh. The flesh includes all the sinful desires and passions associated with our humanness. <clears throat> it's the presence of the unredeemed flesh which causes us to, it's stated in Romans eight twenty three, to groan within ourselves 
waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of the body. Because, of course, we will remain with that unredeemed flesh as long as we are here before our glorification. Now, as we look at the second part then, in verse 10 in the passage, going back to Colossians chapter 3, and verse 10 and having put on the new self, then it says, who was being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, possession of the new self doesn't bring the believer, I'm sorry, does bring the believer new life. A new life is created, as we've seen, but not instant spiritual maturity. It's sort of it's the battle against the flesh that will go on throughout this life, Now, the new self is complete. It's not that it's incomplete. Yet it has the capacity for growth. And that's why we are commanded to follow these commands for mature and growth. Just as a baby is born complete, but yet it has the capacity to grow. So, new nature is complete, but it has the capacity to grow. Paul wrote that our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. Our inner man is being renewed day by day so that it can cope with the decaying outer man. The new self is being renewed. Notice in this passage that we're looking at here in Colossians, is being renewed to, as it says, a, what, a true knowledge. Now, true knowledge refers to a deep, thorough knowledge. Unlike the ever-decaying, depraved nature, the new self is continually being renewed by God in this true knowledge. The process of renewal brings increased knowledge. There is no growth, and this is an important principle to keep in mind, there is no growth in the Christian life apart from knowledge. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, well-known verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22 tells us, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You know that in both of these passages, the emphasis of the renewing of the mind And that renewing of the mind leads us from mature knowledge. And from the mature knowledge flows holy living. But what is then to be the source of that knowledge? As Paul is writing here to Colossians, of course he's writing also to counteract false teaching that had occurred in the church of Colossians. Colossians sort of pre-Gnosticism that was present there in which these claimed to have a very special true knowledge, but of course in mystical terms, those who were initiated into their uh, religion. But yet, Paul here speaks of the true knowledge and the source of that mature knowledge is the Word of God. And that is the thing that we must always keep in mind. Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable, notice, for teaching, involving knowledge, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
Notice that phrase that the training in righteousness is a process occurring of maturing through the knowledge of the Word of God, and we are then a new self is being trained in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And that is what we're talking about in this passage in Colossians. Peter exhorts believers like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Again, you see the picture there of growing and maturing to salvation. And that's 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. So the new self then becomes progressively more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ who created him. And this is the goal of our sanctification while we're in this world. It is God's plan to make believers like Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice the purpose here is to become conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go on to verse 11 in the passage we're looking at this morning, it states, it's a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. And this is part now of the practical description of the risen life of the life of the new self that is beginning to be described here. Just as an individual believer put off the habits of the old self, that's what we saw in the previous passage, also the church puts off the old barriers that separated people. The church must respond as, as individual believers respond to this, then the church as a whole will illustrate this and will show this type of behavior. So the risen life is not just implications for the individual believer's life, but it has great implications for the church, for the body of the church as a whole. The, old, the church puts off the old barriers that separated people. And by the way, the description that he gives here is it's quite dramatic in terms of that first century culture because the descriptions that the people he describes here, it's, there's no distinction between, of course, Greek and Jew, and we know there was a tremendous separation between Greeks and Jews. And there's no distinction beyond that between the barbarian, the Scythian. Now, these were people that were described as doing horrific things, and so, but yet, scriptures here, these, when they are part of the body of Christ, those distinctions have completely gone away. They completely disappear between the slave and the freeman because Christ is all and in all. God has united all believers in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there's no place for racial barriers, so-called racial barriers, or cultural divisions in the church, or any divisions based on any external identifications that we might have otherwise. Paul described that phenomenon in Ephesians chapter 2, and verses 13 and 16. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having to put to death the enmity. Those the enmity that existed between the different groups was put to death by Christ in the believers. Paul reminded the Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor freeman, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. So we find this truth repeated over and over in the New Testament. It's a key truth for the church. And certainly as we look at things going on in our society today, this is tremendously applicable and very up-to-date. Unfortunately, many people within churches look for answers in secular sources to these divisions instead of looking to what the Bible has provided where that enmity has been removed by Christ. Now we just have to live that out. Not to look at what the world is looking at for solutions for these things. There's no place for man-made barriers in the church since Christ is all and in all. Because Christ indwells all believers, therefore all believers are equal. Now as we go on then to verses uh, 13, and verse, uh, <clears throat> sorry, 12 and 13, it says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now notice here that in verses 5 through the first part of verse 9 in this passage, Paul told the believers what was to be to put off, to lay aside, as he reminded them of those sins that were to be put off. While in the section here from verse, the second part of verse 9 through verse 11, then he describes what the believer's identity is in Christ, and that is sort of a transition passage there. But it establishes the fact of our identity in Christ, which is the basis for us to be able to do these things to carry these things out. And then in this passage, verses 9, second part through verse 11, Paul described what God has done for us, for the believer. And now, beginning in verse 12, Paul begins to tell the believers what we're to put on. On the basis of our identity in Christ, what we are to put on. In verses 12 through 17, he described what God expects of us, what he expects of the believer in response to who we are in Christ. A righteous identity must issue in righteous behavior. We have a righteous identity, <clears throat> our identity in Christ, and therefore that identity must show forth righteous behavior. Now this type of behavior is the outward manifestation of the inward transformation that has occurred in the believer. Such behavior is sure proof that such transformation has taken place, and it is really the only proof 
So we often hear Pastor Bill saying, you know, don't just look at a decision that was made at some point in time. We look at what is our life in Christ like? How is that matter? What's our external life manifesting in terms of our internal lives? No one becomes a Christian solely by their own choice. Rather, believers are those who have been chosen by God. And so Paul stays here. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, then put on a heart of compassion and so on and so forth. Now here, of course, this goes to the truth of divine election, which is clearly taught throughout Scripture. Believers are those who have been chosen of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, a well-known verse, says that God chose us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul was confident of God's chosen of the Thessalonians and thanked him. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. So God did not call us because of our own works or because of any, that's anything meritorious in us. He didn't see something that has merited for salvation. He called us because of his own purpose, because of his own grace that was so abundantly bestowed on each one of us. The believers' names have been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. You find that stated in Revelation, both in chapter 13 and chapter 17. Now, underlying our response to God's free, sovereign grace is his plan and his initiative. He is the sovereign worker of salvation. Because of God's election, believers are holy and beloved. That's what Paul tells us here in the verse we're looking at. Holy means set apart or separate. And we are beloved of God. We are loved with an everlasting love by God. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, sums it up well. It states, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. What a wonderful passage that is. Now, the doctrine of election has a very important effect on our pride It crushes our pride because it's nothing that we have done. And it exalts God because he is the sovereign creator and effector of salvation. It produces joy and gratitude to the Lord. And, of course, it grants eternal privileges and assurance. But it also has an important effect that it promotes holiness because we are to respond to God's grace and sovereign salvation. Also makes us bold and courageous because we are acting within God's plan, and so we are safe 
in his plan, his purposes. And the one who's been chosen by God for eternal life has no need to fear anymore or anyone. Now the word here that he, this phrase put on is from a word which means to put on clothes or to be enveloped in clothes. And that's why we say the metaphor is used to taking off clothes before now putting on clothes. Because that's really what that word had type the meaning. And the qualities that follow or the virtues that follow are to cover the new man. That is the, the image of this metaphor. That these clothes are put on when they cover the new man. Now one of the things that he mentions here first he mentions a heart of compassion. It's the first character that is to mark the new man here in this verse. The word heart here is translated from a word that uh, literally refers to the inward parts of the human body. And it's often used in the New Testament to speak figuratively of the seed of the emotions. Now, it's a different word that oftentimes is used for heart in other contexts, so we don't just make sure we don't confuse this. But the word splanchnium. It's used here, means pity, mercy, sympathy, or compassion. So taken together, the phrase could be translated, put on heartfelt compassion, or have a deep gut-level feeling of compassion. That divine quality, of course, is perfectly exhibited by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's sorely needed in our day-to-day, just as it was sorely needed in the culture in which Paul wrote this. Believers must not be indifferent to suffering, but should be concerned to meet people's needs. Next, then, he mentions the things we need to put on, the virtues, kindness. And this is very closely related to compassion. The Greek term refers to the grace that pervades the whole person, mellowing all that might be harsh. Sometimes we do have a tendency to be harsh, but this term is very mellowing in terms of eliminating this harshness. The Lord Jesus himself used the word when he said, my yoke is easy. It's not harsh or it's not hard to bear. The kind person is concerned about his neighbor's good as concerned as he is about his own good. God is kind even to ungrateful and evil people like us. In fact, it was his kindness that led us to repentance. The Lord Jesus' kindness was expressed in his invitation to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Now, kindness was epitomized by the Good Samaritan whose example we should follow among the parable of the lower tone. Now, the next virtue that's mentioned in this verse is humility. And it's the word for humility here always have a negative connotation in classical Greek. It's interesting how, as Paul presents virtue and throughout different parts of the New Testament, it was completely counterculture because humility in the Greek culture was seen as a weakness. It actually was disdained. It took Christianity to elevate humility to a virtue. It certainly wasn't that in the Greek culture. 
Humility is the antidote for the self-love that poisons relationships. What affects and breaks relationships? It's usually self-love, it's pride. And Paul advocates genuine humility in contrast to the false humility of the false teachers. Humility is characterized, characterized the Lord Jesus and is the most cherished Christian virtue. You know, pride is the most basic sin that undermines many of our sins, and humility, being the opposite of pride, is the virtue that counteracts that. The next thing that he mentions here is gentleness, and it's closely related to humility. Now notice, gentleness is not weakness, but rather the willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. Even when you know that you have the power to not necessarily suffer that weakness, that suffering, when you have the ability to inflict pain, but yet you refrain from it. The general person knows he's a sinner among sinners and is willing to suffer the burdens other sin may impose on him. Now, this generalist, as well as the other virtues that we're looking at here, can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. And we find that in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23 as we see the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And it should mark the Christian's behavior at all times, even when restoring a sinning brother in Galatians 6.1, or when defending the faith against attacks from unbelievers, as in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, and 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Gentleness should characterize us in all of those circumstances. And then patience, as mentioned, the, the patient person does not get angry at others. Patience is the opposite of resentment and revenge. Again, it was characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Timothy, For this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might be demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul here is marveling at the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ manifested in his life as he identifies himself as, as the foremost of sinners. Were it not for God's patience, no one would ever be saved. And then he mentions going on, bearing with one another. Now this means to endure, to hold out in spite of persecution, threats, injury, indifference, or complaints against us, and not to retaliate, but to bear with one another. And this must be a characteristic of each one of us in the body of Christ. Believers are to be marked not only by endurance, but also by forgiving each other. And that's mentioned here. Now, the Greek word literally means to be gracious, and the text uses a reflexive pronoun, so it literally reads, forgiving yourselves, forgiving one another. The church as a whole is to be a gracious, mutually forgiving fellowship. There should not be conflicts between believers that remain and are not resolved without forgiveness. That is such a crucial principle for the body of Christ. By including the phrase 
just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Here Paul makes Christ, again, the model of forgiveness. So as we feel that we have a grievance against a brother or sister, we are to look at Christ and what, how much he has forgiven us, and then in turn forgive each other. The phrase, whoever has a complaint against anyone, refers to times when someone is at fault because of sin, error, or debt. And the Lord Jesus is our pattern for forgiveness because he forgave all our sins all our errors, all our debts. He's also the model for the rest of the virtues that are discussed, of course, in in this section. Then he goes on in verse 14, he states, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, love is the most important moral virtue, moral quality in the believer's life because it's the very virtue that produces unity in the church. And notice he states here, because, because all, all these things put on love, because it is the perfect bond of unity. As believers, we'll never enjoy mutual fellowship through the compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, or patience that is mentioned here, unless we, it's expressed in love one towards another. In fact, the way to sum up the commands of these verses, 13 and 12 and 13, is to say, love one another. That really encompasses all of these. To try to practice these virtues apart from love would be legalism, just forcing ourselves to try to do things not in Christ's love. So these, all these virtues must flow from love, which in turn is a fruit of the Spirit-filled life. Nothing is acceptable to God if it's not motivated by love. And we must always keep that clearly in mind in our lives. Including knowledge, faith, and obedience. Love is the beauty of the believer, and it dispels the ugly sins of the flesh that destroy unity. So without love, unity within the body is destroyed. And then as we finish up in verses 15 through 17, in our passage here in Colossians 3, states, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful that the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, Paul here concludes this look at the virtues that should mark the lifestyle of the new man, the new self, by giving three priorities that are mentioned here. And they're, as it were, in our metaphor, sort of the outer gar- outermost garments of the new man. These are garments that cover all the others that have been mentioned previously. See, the new man is concerned with the peace of Christ, he's concerned with the word of Christ, and he's concerned with the name of Christ. In verse 15, when it states, that let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, the word peace here includes both the concept 
of an agreement or a pact or a treaty, such as is carried out when peace is declared between two nations or two warring parties. And it also includes an attitude of rest and of security. It's, an ad, it's a state which is free from commo, commo, commotion or tumult. With it's quiet and calm. It's not involved in uh, being affected by disturbing emotions. It has the sense of being serene, tranquil, the state of a soul that's assured of its salvation through Christ. And so the soul is not fearing of anything outside of Christ. And, of course, we don't fear God's wrath because he has resolved that in our redemption in Christ. So both aspects are in view here, both the aspect of the objective and the subjective. Objectively, the believers are at peace with God. We are at peace with God because he has declared it so in our salvation. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the war between the believer and God, because of our sin, because of being enemies of God, that war is over and the treaty was paid for by the blood of Christ. So because of that, the believer is at rest. We are at rest and we are secure. And then Paul told the Philippians in chapter 4 and verse 7 that the peace of God shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Of course, this is the subjective aspect of our lives, is the peace of God in us. Here he calls it the peace of Christ in our passage in Colossians because it is the peace that Christ brings. And notice that he used the word the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It was this word to rule was used to describe the activity of someone like an umpire or an official deciding the outcome of an athletic contest or to rule, to govern, to control. So the peace of Christ then is to rule our hearts. The peace of Christ is to control our hearts. And it guides us both in our daily living and it guides us in making decisions. Peace is not only objective and subjective as we've seen in this passage, but it's also relational because believers are called to live in peace in one body. So it's objective in terms of we have peace with God because of our redemption, our sin has been done away with. We have the peace of God in us subjectively then allow us to be able to not fear of our situations in daily life, but we also have a peace relationally with others in the body of Christ. As believers, we are called to live in peace in one body. Individuals who have peace with Christ and in their own hearts will live in unity and harmony with each other. And that's, that's an important aspect of our life together in the church. To maintain a peaceful heart, one has to be thankful. Notice that he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, govern your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. That's at the end of verse 15. 
Thankfulness is a constant theme in Colossians. We see it throughout the epistle. And, of course, we see it throughout the New Testament. Thankfulness, gratitude, comes naturally to believers in response to all that God has done. And we are thankful for him, what he has done in us. It's a spirit of humble gratitude toward God, and it will inevitably lead us, affect our relations with others. Peace and gratitude are thus closely linked. One is intimately linked with the other. Then an important assertion as he goes into verse 16 here in our passage where he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice he uses the expression here, the word of Christ. And of course, this refers to the revelation to scripture because it is the word of Christ. We have received the word of Christ in the revealed scriptures and God's special revelation to us. The revelation of God was brought into the world, scripture, and through it we have come to know him. So peace and thankfulness, as well as unity, love, and all the required virtues flow from a mind that is controlled by scripture. Paul is building crescendo here to the point of all these things can only be achieved by a mind that is controlled by Scripture. Notice he uses the term here, dwell. Let the word, the, the word of Christ richly dwell within you. For the word richly, there has a sense of being abundant, not just a little bit, but abundantly dwelling in you. And the word dwell is a word that means to live in or to be at home in. So it's saying, let the word of Christ be at home in your heart. Let the word of Christ be richly living in your heart. Paul calls upon us to let the word of Christ take up residence in, our, in us and be at home in our hearts, in our lives. The truth of Scripture should permeate every aspect of the believer's life and govern every thought every word, and every deed. The word dwells in us when we study it, when we hear it, when we apply it in our lives, and when we hold fast to it. Now, to do those things, the Christian must read Scripture, must study Scripture, must meditate on Scripture, and must live Scripture. So all of those then result in the word dwelling in us. To let the word of Christ richly dwell, of course, is identical to the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, where it says to be filled with the Spirit. Through the word of Christ richly dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit controls our hearts. It is clear that these two concepts are identical because the passages that follow each are so similar. If you look at the results, what the results in this passage here of letting the word of Christ richly dwell in your hearts, and then the passage in Ephesians 5:18 of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the results are quite the same. In Colossians, 
let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In Ephesians, it says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You see the, the two parallels, they're very closely related. The result then of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as the result of letting the word of Christ dwell richly in our life. The two are the same spiritual reality viewed from two sides. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word. As we are filled with God's Word, it controls our thinking and it controls our actions. And we thereby become more and more under the Spirit's control. To have the Word dwelling richly within us is to be controlled by His Spirit. Paul mentions Two specific results here of the word of Christ, richly dwelling the believer. One is, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching is the communication of biblical truth. Admonishing is the exhortation to obedience of that biblical truth. And both are important. We must communicate the truth of the word of God, and then we must exhort each other to obedience of that biblical truth. But both are the result of a life that is saturated with the word of Christ. Having the word of Christ richly dwell in us produces not just information, but it produces affection. It results in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Now, psalms were taken from the Old Testament Psalter, the book of Psalms, and they sang psalms put to music, much as we do today, Hymns were expressions of praise to God. Spiritual songs emphasized testimony. So songs that flow from a heart that has experienced God's redemption and God's deliverance, and they express in song what God has done for us. So as believers, we sing out of thankfulness for God's grace. And then finally, in verse 17, it says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him, to God the Father. So the simplest and most basic uh, rule of the believer's life is that everything we do, whether word, deed, everything, is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be done for his glory. To do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is to act consistently with who he is and what he commands. His name identifies who he is. And so to do things in his name is to do things in accordance to who he is and in obedience to what he commands. Paul expressed a similar thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or verse 31. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And again, Paul reminds us that it's always to be done giving thanks through him to God the Father. So finally, to put on the new life is to put on Christ. That's the obligation, that's the command that every believer is to follow. So the goal of the Christian is Christ-likenesses. As we grow in Christ, the old clothing of sinful thoughts and habits is continually being discarded 
and his divine clothing of righteousness, of truth and holiness, and love is being put on. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful truth that are present in this passage. Now we pray, Lord, help, help us not just to be intellectually assenting to these things, Lord. Help us to interact intimately in our inner beings, each one of us, with these truths, that we may be transformed more and more into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.